members of the Navajo Nation who are struggling with the COVID-19 pandemic and how that has exacerbated uh, racial disparities. In terms of the infrastructure of the Navajo Nation, um, I think it has just glaringly brought out those inequities and the disparities. People forget that there are 573 sovereign governments that have the right to determine who they are, what they are, where they're going, and be able to, to practice their religion, their traditions, their customs. Hi there, everyone. My name is Peter Caldas. I am the CEO of the American Society on Aging, and welcome to another episode of Future Proof. Today on Future Proof, we're going to be continuing our conversation this season around equity and justice. And I'm really delighted uh, with our guest today. Uh, his name is Larry Curley. He's the executive director of the National Indian Council on Aging in Albuquerque, New Mexico, is a member of the Navajo Nation, and along with members of the National Tribal Chairman's Association, founded the NICOA in 1976. And uh, last year, he was a 2019 Influencer in Aging by Next Avenue. So today we'll be addressing the issues of equity and justice and how they intersect with Larry's important work with older adults in the Navajo Nation. So Larry, thank you very much for joining us on Future Proof. Welcome. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Larry, I want to start off our conversation today with something very recent that happened. Uh, the Supreme Court's recent decision involving um, Indian law and Oklahoma. And I wanted if you could just share with us the impact of that particular case on some other matters that uh, impact the civil rights of older adults uh, of uh, Indian descent. Well, I, I have been very interested in what's going on in Oklahoma and with the recent court decision uh, regarding the jurisdiction of Indian tribes over what used to be Indian country in Eastern Oklahoma. Um, I've been mulling through what will be the impact of that particular Supreme Court decision, not only in the area of criminal law, but also in civil law. And uh, in terms of just where they are now, my understanding is that the five tribal uh, leaders uh, of the five civilized tribes have been working on an agreement with the uh, attorney general for the state of Oklahoma. And they had all agreed at, at some point of how they're going to divvy up the, uh, the jurisdictional issues. Um, but as of yesterday, I read that two of the, uh, uh, the tribal leaders backed out of that agreement. And so it puts everything into disarray. But I think looking at it from the aging perspective and elderly perspective, I think that part of the questions that I look at is we currently have across this country um, nursing home ombudsmen funded by the older Americans are. And those nursing home ombudsmen have jurisdiction and they exercise their jurisdiction over um, and, uh, looking at nursing homes, doing inspections and making sure they follow up on complaints. And the question is, will those uh, ombudsmen now have jurisdiction over Indian country, nursing homes in Indian country, like in Tulsa and other parts of the state of, uh, of Oklahoma? I don't know. And um, I think that that's something that 
will probably have to be worked out. But it does fall into the issue, I think, of how are we going to be uh, treated equally and with, with justice in terms of following up on complaints? Are the tribes going to allow the non-tribal nursing home ombudsman onto their into their into their Indian country to look at nursing homes, et cetera? So it brings up a lot of these kinds of issues. And I I also wonder, for example, whether under the older Americans, we have the Title III programs. You know, we have area agencies on aging. Are these area agencies that were created by the state of Oklahoma? Will, this, will the tribes now have jurisdiction over those area agencies and determine where those area agencies will be placed? So it, it creates a lot of, uh, I think, uncertainty. And we don't need any more uncertainty in what's going on today in this world. So, But that's just a short answer, uh, just kind of reflecting what's going on out there. It's a it's a fascinating uh, case. I know it was uh, heralded by many who practice Indian law, um, but I you can easily see how that kind of inconsistent application could have some pretty uh, devastating effects, particularly um, as we we want to talk about today uh, in areas of of the country, and particularly uh, with members of the Navajo Nation who are struggling with the COVID-19 pandemic and how that has exacerbated uh, racial disparities uh, within the nation and within, you know, um, nursing homes and other areas. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how COVID-19 has really shown those racial disparities. I think that just in terms of the infrastructure of the Navajo Nation, um, I think it has just glaringly brought out those inequities and the disparities. I know because I used to be the executive director of the Department of Health for the Navajo Nation. And in my department, I have 14 major programs. And having been out there and going out and, and seeing my elders out there on Navajo country, water, obviously, there's lack of water. There's no running water going into homes. Up. And that exacerbates the problems, the health issues out there. Roads are in, in the wintertime or in, even in summertime when it rains, roads are impossible. So if an elderly person is in an emergency situation, some of those roads are impassable. Um, and that creates a health issue. Um, and overall, having been involved in the area of Indian health for quite some time and specifically looking at it through the lens of how is it going to affect our elders in this country, Indian Health Service is a major health care provider out in Indian country. And for years and years, and I've been one of the ones yelling and screaming at the top of my lungs to say, we are underfunded. We need to be able to... Uh, have the amount of funding that is commensurate with what's happening in elsewhere. I was listening in on a meeting yesterday with a group called the TTAG. That's the Tribal uh, Technical Advisory Group. That's an advisory group to CMS. And there was an individual there who said that uh, the per person allocation funds for Indian people is $3,900. 
compared to 11,000 for the non-Indian population. So the right there is a, a, a discrepancy and a, uh, an, an equitable dis uh, 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 distribution of resources. And when we talk about um, providers, for example, when I was out there in Indian country working with the tribes out there, it was difficult to recruit doctors, nurses out there because it, most of those tribes are located out in the middle of nowhere. And they don't want to go to those kinds of facilities. And so it's, a, it's very difficult. And if you do have one uh, willing to come out, you have to pay them at a higher, higher price to recruit them to, out to those facilities. And so just the proportion of providers out there um, is severely lacking. So that's it, my in addition, No, in addition to access to doctors, what other issues have come up um, as a result of the pandemic uh, that you've seen as executive director of the NICOA? Well, one of the things that has come up and we were having uh, every Friday, we were having discussions with all 273 Title VI directors around the country. And every one of them were talking about what's missing out there. PPEs, for example, um, face masks is, is, is lacking out there. And so these are just um, some of the problems that they're dealing with and having to deal with. And for example, they were saying, uh, we have people out here who need dialysis. And since some of the tribes have locked down their reservations, they're not allowed to go off reservation. And so it's creating that kind of a problem. And in talking about healthcare, the delivery of healthcare, um, in, in the rest of the country, we talk about telehealth, telemedicine, it's easily available. You can like, we're talking right now, you're in Florida and I'm in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We can cover the span of distance very easily. But in Indian country, it is very, very difficult because in some areas of Indian country, there is no broadband. There is no access to the internet. So you can't implement telehealth, telemedicine out there in Indian country. And so that, that even exacerbates the problem even more than just uh, the issues that we we're just discussing. You know, I want to talk a little bit about what's going on in our country today and besides the pandemic. Um, can we reflect a little bit on the recent protests against racism and police brutality. I'm wondering if you could reflect a little bit about the reaction of your members to these protests. Well, I have not heard anyone say the police guys are doing fine. They're protecting us, they're taking care of us. I have not heard anybody say anything of that sort, but mostly what I have heard is that's what we've been going through for, for decades that the, the brutality is there, uh, the discrimination is there, um, the length of time people are sitting soft to, to be incarcerated is much longer um, than the rest of the population, the non-Indian population. And so that's what I've been hearing. And seeing, uh, for example, um, uh, I just recently, uh, about a year ago, there was a young lady in Winslow, Arizona, who happens to be a member of my tribe, um, went into a Circle Case uh, gas station store, into a convenience store, and 
the store manager accused her of shoplifting. The cops showed up and they shot her five times. And the people there who looked at the investigator said it was a justified homicide. Five times she was shot. And they said that she was carrying a scissors that made her dangerous. It was one of the paper cutting scissors. Um, one of those small school type uh, issue. And so, you know, these are happening. And, and so it's, we don't find it surprising that this is happening. Um, even from my own personal experience, when I'm driving down the road and all of a sudden I see a police car come up behind me, automatically the hair on the back of my neck stands up. Don't do anything crazy. Drive careful. Don't look suspicious or act. It's what comes with the territory. And it's, and I think that a lot of Indian people in this country have gotten to that point where they feel that way as well. Um, we have, there's a different perspective. Yeah, but there are a lot of similarities with, the, with what we're hearing from folks who are just frustrated at these kinds of day in and day out aggressions, really. Uh, and I'm wondering what you have to say to the young protesters. Uh, how do your members and how do you feel about seeing a real movement emerge? Well, I was part of the late 1960s and 1970s movement. So I was part of that uh, generation. And I think that it's powerful. I think we, my generation, who were part of that movement back in the late 60s, early 70s, I think we blew it. I think we, had, we missed an opportunity to change the face of this country. But the young people today, they're even more committed. They've already inspired a massive cultural and a perspective change in our society. And I applaud that. I, I hope they continue and I strongly support what they're doing. I think there'd be a lot of protesters who, wouldn't, who would never sort of suggest that you, your generation blew it at all. In fact, to the contrary, they couldn't be protesting like this, but for your work. So I hope you don't, you don't really think that. <laughs> but I want to talk to you about some other things that the protests have, have forced us to rethink about. And that is our history and our approach to history, our approach to who we commemorate and why. And one issue that has sort of taken a bit more um, of our attention now is the naming of military bases. And I know the Navajo Nation uh, played such a key role, uh, members of the Navajo Nation played such a key role in fighting most of our wars in the United States. So I'm wondering, can you talk about um, a movement or the effort to rename some of the military bases after those who fought on behalf of our country, but who were from the Navajo Nation? I think it'd be appropriate, quite frankly. Um, I read somewhere um, a few years back that American Indians in this country, proportionately, more of them have served in the military and fought on behalf of this country. My tribe, the Navajo Nation, um, lent its language to win a war. And those are the Navajo co-talkers. 
Um, I think the Navy recently just came out and named a whole new class of ships uh, for the Navajo Nation. Navajo class, I think it was called Navajo class uh, destroyers or something. I forget what. But I think it's starting. I think it. I think we need to be remembered that there were um, Indian people from across the country who fought bravely out there on, on our behalf. Um, we have, for example, right now in the Navajo Nation, uh, one of the co-talkers, his name is Peter McDonald. He's a former chairman of the Navajo Nation, and he's one of the original co-talkers. And I think that those are the people that need to be honored. It's not only just Navajos. I think I heard that the Creeks also had some, and they had the Crows also were a part of that co-talking um, uh, uh, group that went in during World War II. But we have... American Indians who are also generals, uh, who have attained the rank of generals. And I think that when their time ends, that we ought to honor those generals as well, uh, those leaders. So I, I have a lot of respect for our veterans for what they've done and what they fought for, uh, for that possibility that one day I would be able to sit down and talk with you in the language that you can understand. That was what they fought for. And um, I, I am honored to, to, to be a part of that uh, legacy. I'm wondering if you could also share with us how you think we can, what we can do uh, as a country to be more inclusive around uh, Native Americans and um, be more all-encompassing when we talk about race. In other words, it's not just about Black Lives Matter. It is about our general treatment of minorities in this country. I'm wondering, what would you recommend to our ASA members to be more inclusive? How could they be more inclusive? I, I think that one of the things that I just want to uh, have been saying for many, many years is uh, uh, we... We are American Indians and Alaska Natives, but we're part of a group of people that are recognized by the United States government, the Constitution of the United States, Article 1, Section 8. We are a political body. We are members of a political body, and we're not a racial group in that sense. And I think that there's a people forget that there are 573 sovereign governments that have the right to determine who they are, what they are, where they're going, and be able to, to practice their religion, their traditions, their customs. And when I think about that, I think about, at least from my own personal perspective, we look at everything on this planet as equal. We are equal beings. The mountains are equal. Some of those mountains are very sacred to us because they hold certain meanings. And when I see the non-Indian population going up to one of our sacred mountains and putting up a, uh, a ski resort up on there, it's as if I went and, and then using artificial reclaimed water to make fake snow. and Reclaimed water is made up of, you know, processed human stuff. 
it would be like me going to the Mormon tabernacle and urinating on it. It is not something we would do because we respect. And I'm, I wish the larger population would understand that all of these places that, uh, that they see and, and walk upon from our perspective, it's very sacred because it contains the dust and the ashes of our ancestors. It's sacred land. And that's who we are. And when we talk about history books, please add in there the fact that um, Chief Joseph of the Nas Perce tribe did this. A fantastic military strategist, crazy horse, what he did. Um, Chief Manuelito from the Navajo Nation. All of those were powerful people and they had wisdom that a lot of our, a lot of the larger population could, could use now. You know, Larry, I'm wondering if you could share with us how you think um, older adults from various Indian nations can help not just inform, you know, uh, our ASA members, you know, providers, healthcare providers, et cetera, but could really play a role in better understanding just how different and how uh, unique every single older adult is in America. What, what sorts of things should we be doing? I really think that they need to take the time to sit down and talk with them. Sit down and talk. And those elderly people are more than willing to share what they know and how they perceive the world what their role was in the world that we created. They're fantastic storytellers. And I think that's where the interaction needs to occur. You know, I have people, I run across people here in New Mexico who have lived here in New Mexico all of their lives and still know very little about the Indian tribes here in New Mexico. And, I, and they ask questions like, are we permitted to go on the reservation? Yes, you're permitted. We're not going to kick you off the res. Come in. It's well, well, it's like it's not like a private uh, country club, you know, <laughs> where you got to be a member to go in. Uh, so, the Indian reservations are not a country club. You're invited. Come visit us. Please understand us. See where we live, and you have a better understanding. And I think that one of the things that you'll note in Indian country among our elders, they're resilient. They are very strong people. And for those who make it to the age of 70, 80, 90, they were probably the cream of the crop in terms of the strongest, the fittest, the wisest, and the most resilient. And they have much to teach us. You know, even at my age, you know, I think back to the time when I was working with all kinds of elders or uh, Asian people, African-Americans, Jewish population, the regular white population, other Indian tribes. And I started counting one time, all of those elders that I knew and how old they were when I knew them. And you know, I counted their ages up, like, like Esther Tang in Tucson. She was 78 years old when I knew her. I added all their ages up, 2,000 years of what they taught me, 2,000 years of experience and wisdom. And I think that's how we should value our elders, is to learn from them what they went through 
and become just as resilient because we have a responsibility to the next generation behind us and the one behind them. And I think we think too often short term. What's tomorrow, next week? From a, 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 our own almost almost a selfish perspective, we need to think about those young people that are coming up. Uh, Larry, I couldn't agree with you more. I think like we're seeing with racism, ageism devalues human life. And we really need to do so much more to remind ourselves that we do have value as we age. Uh, I know at the ASA, we're going to be doing a lot more of that work to to demonstrate that. And I'm so grateful for all the work that you're doing. Uh, We're nearly out of time, Larry, but I want to ask you one question that I've been asking all our guests uh, here on season two of Future Proof. And that is, why do you think that you've um, pursued a career where you are advocating for equity and justice? Well, I think that one of the things is just the way I was raised. Um, My father was a medicine man. He was not educated in the formal sense, but he knew the world. And one of the things that he said was, you're no better or no worse than anybody on this planet including the bugs, the birds, the animals, you're no better or you're no worse. You're all equal, treat everybody equally. And so when you take, when I take a look at the world and I say, our elders need to be treated equally, our people need to be treated equally and respected in that particular fashion. I think that working with elderly populations have provided me with a platform to be able to do that. Well, and I'm glad that you are, and I know you're going to continue to do as much as possible to advocate for for all our seniors. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for your contributions to the ASA. We're very, very grateful. And uh, that wraps it up, Larry. Thank you for joining us. And uh, thank you for joining us as well. We hope uh, you've enjoyed this episode. And if you want to log in and, and view more episodes, visit our website and stay tuned for more uh, future proof.